All right, well, as we get started, um, we are going to be going through the whole Bible today. So we've ordered some box lunches. But more seriously, if you don't normally grab notes, and I really should have thought to print off some extras this week, but if you don't normally grab notes, you might want to grab one, at least for your family or something, because we are really going to be looking at a lot of scripture text this morning. So there's kind of that initial caveat. If you feel like we're going through a bunch of things, because we are. (laughs) So... All right, so this morning we are looking at the Trinitarian family Christmas, the family Christmas of the Trinity, introducing your elder brother. And we get to look at what that looks like. This is actually something that I had the the blessing and opportunity to study uh, fairly in depth during the course of seminary many years ago, study on it, write a paper on it, that sort of thing. But there's a lot of... um, a lot of discussion that happens over, okay, what's the central theme of the Bible? Like an organizing theme that you could focus on. And the more that I've read, the more that I've seen different people propose different, very reasonable scenarios, the more I've concluded, well, there's multiple, really, that you could kind of organize the Bible around because there's so much depth and richness to what God is doing. And this morning, what we have the opportunity to look at is the theme of family, uh, specifically God's family that courses throughout the entirety of Scripture. And that at Christmas, it's kind of culminated in some ways with the introduction of Jesus into the world. Here now is God among us, continuing to bring the family and pave the way for the family. So what I want to do is as we go through this this morning, we don't have the lights out, we don't have a real fireplace, but maybe you can imagine some sort of crackling fireplace and we're all sitting around telling family stories during Christmas, setting our identity, recalling the things that have happened in the past the grandchildren asking grandpa to tell the story of when he went out and shot that deer out back because the wolf had just mauled it or, you know, whatever. These kind of tales of excellence or the way that grandma tells about the things that she used to do when she was knitting and when she was a seamstress and that was her livelihood and, you know, all that. Or generations ago when people used to ask about the Depression. These things that shape our families over the course of time such that things that your grandfather or great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather did still impact you now, even though you don't even realize it. It's kind of handed down in family identity and family culture and all of this. And the more that we understand those stories at times, the more we understand ourselves also, both for better and for worse, ways that we can grow, ways that we can better orient ourselves to who God has made us. So as we go literally through all of Scripture, we're starting in Genesis 1 and we will touch on Revelation 22, I want you to see this and think through this together. This is the story of our family as believers in Jesus. This is what God has been doing and remains doing even now. So first off, as we start in, we are going to be in John 17.5 briefly and looking at the fact that the Trinitarian family is eternal. Uh, And you will see all of the main scripture texts that I'm going to reference are listed in the notes. So if you find yourself getting behind on one of them, you'll find those um, in there. So before we get all the way to that, I want to pray just that God would help us as we cover a lot of material and that he would be with us. God, thank you for the fact that you have brought us into your family. Thank you that we can find our identity in you ultimately. And I pray that as we look at scripture all across the Bible, that you would encourage us, Spirit, that you would be with us to see the glory of what you've done 
and how we are situated in history and how we are situated in your family and how that can be such a great source of joy and hope and peace and, and everything good that you supply. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 17, 5. Now, John 17, Jesus has been with the disciples. He's predicting his death. He's about to get arrested and go to the cross. And in John 17, he turns and he prays what we have often labeled the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's basically praying for 23, 24 verses to the Father on behalf of his people. And he's saying, you know, God, you gave me these people, these disciples, and I haven't lost them except for the one who was supposed to be lost. And please be with them and give them unity and all of this. But in verse 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So as, as, Father, as we're looking toward this moment and the cross is about to happen, would you glorify me again with the presence I had with you before the world existed? So what happened before the world was created? The Son was with the Father, sharing in glory. If we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Paul is recounting what's going to happen in the future. And he says, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. So, complex phrase. When all things are put beneath him, Jesus, then the Son, Jesus, will be put underneath him, the Father, the Father who subjected all things under Jesus. Right? So all things are subjected, put under Jesus as king over the earth by the Father. When that's done, Jesus will be put under the Father who put those things under him. Right? Makes sense? Sort of? That God may be all in all. But what we're seeing is even in time's future, the Son is submitting to the Father. And in time's past to time's future, he's sharing in that glory the father and son relationship continues to exist. This family dimension exists throughout all time. Family is not something that started when Adam and Eve became parents for the first time. Family is something that has existed through all eternity that the Trinity has had and is shared with creation and God's people. So the Trinitarian family is eternal, kind of setting the context as we move forward into Scripture. So then, Genesis 1, 26, the Trinitarian family has been growing since creation. God created everything. He created the humans, Adam and Eve, or at this time, man and woman. And he said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his image or as his image man to be God's representative, to be carrying on the work here on his behalf. When we get to Genesis 5, a couple chapters later in verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered the son in his image, as his image, in his own likeness, and named him Seth. So just as God had Adam, had man and woman as his image, so Adam reproduces in his image. Not the exact same thing. Obviously, humans are not divine. But just in that same pattern we see, as God created in his image, now man is reproducing in his image. And then we fast forward really far to Luke. Luke 3.38 
Because this is connected to Christmas and to Jesus. Luke 3.38, we get to the end of the genealogy of Jesus. It's recounting a bunch of names, going back from Jesus and saying he was, as was supposed, the, the son of Joseph, because he was the adopted son of Joseph, and then Joseph, the son of this person, the son of this person, the son of this person. We get to Luke 3.38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Not the creation of God, not the preeminent one that was the crowning jewel of creation of God, the Son of God. Again, a family context. That God is not just saying, hey, I made these people. Cool. I'll be friends with them. That's also true. But no, it's more than that. Adam, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, connected to this first Son of God. Jesus, the true and real and divine Son of God, the one who's actually God but connected through this human lineage to one who was created to be representative son of God. So then Genesis 1.28 says to them, God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Basically, hey, I've given you this creation and I've made you. Now make it bigger. <laughs> Spread this garden now, fill it with people, expand the family. The Trinitarian family has been expanding since creation. But that doesn't always go well. Sin screws things up. Cain kills Abel. More people are more sinful. Things get worse and worse. God says this is going to have to wipe out. Here comes the flood. But when we get to Genesis 9, post-flood, is it all over? Genesis 9 verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's not all over. This is continuing, the same goal. All right, look, we had to wipe it out with a flood. We're kind of starting over, but do the same thing. Go repopulate this. Refill this. We're going to start this over and continue on the same trajectory that we've been doing. The family is growing. So growing since creation, going through Adam and Eve, fruitful and multiplying, Noah, fruitful and multiplying. We go shortly a couple chapters later, and it's focusing more in on Abraham and his family. And God's saying, through you, I'm going to bless the whole earth. All of that. So we see as that happens, now God has established this family. God is now going to continue claiming his family, but he's going to specifically rescue and discipline his son, as we see it stated in Scripture. So as we track through this, we get to Exodus 4. In Exodus 4, verse 22, he's talking to Moses, and he's saying, hey, I'm going to send you to Egypt I'm going to send you to free my people from Egypt who have been trapped in slavery, as you know, Moses. And Moses is all like, I can't speak. He's like, you, you'll be fine. Okay, fine, I'll send Aaron with you. And Aaron will speak, right? Because Moses has this back and forth complaining that he doesn't want to do it. So when he's telling Moses, here's what you're going to say, this brings us to chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. This is no small matter for God. He says, no, this is my son. This country, this nation is my son. So both on an individual level, Adam, the representative son of God, and a national level, Israel, the nation, the son of God, who at that time didn't have a land. <laughs> they were in Egypt as, as slaves, and they were about to be wanderers for a long time. But no, Israel is my son. Those who have come through the seed of the woman, if we go back to Genesis, see the woman, see the serpent, 
Those who have come through this pattern and through this line are God's son. So it's not just, hey, these are my people. They worship me. I'm taking them out. No, no. Very personal, very direct, very familial, son, family of God, called in, rescued, and then disciplined. As God rescues the people and he disciplines them himself in the desert and whatever, but then you get to Deuteronomy and he's telling them how to live well, how to live well as his people in his image. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, many of us would be familiar with these verses probably, but listen to this in this context because he's established family of God. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Throughout life, throughout your existence. Fast forward to the end of the chapter, verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Again, family of God, teaching sharing, handing down the truth and the testimony, grounding their faith in that rescuing plan, in the exodus. Right? This is for generations to come when your sons are asking you, why do we do these things? You're to tell them, ultimately, because God rescued us of the exodus. That's what he's referencing back to, looking backward in time, setting their identity not just in the present moment. Why are we doing these things? Oh, because it seemed right in the desert right now. We wanted to do this. Well, no. No, we're doing this to remember what God has done for us, to remember whose we are and who we are. You could think of examples in Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. We're not going to turn to all of those because you could basically recite the entire thing. (laughs) But multiple times in those, my son, hear my voice, listen to my teaching. This concept that it's not just some generic instruction handed out. This is handed out in a familial type context. Again, the family of God pervading even the wisdom literature and the the, the sage advice that's given in the course of life. But then fast forward to Hosea 11. So Hosea, one of the minor prophets later on in the history of Israel. Both Israel and Judah have now been exiled and the prophets are calling out to them to return to the Lord, to worship him, to be faithful to him. In Hosea 11, it starts off in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So we, that makes sense, right? We just saw that in Exodus. My, my son is coming out. So out of Egypt I called my son. Then we get to verse 8 of that same chapter, and he's speaking to them, using the, the word Ephraim is like a nickname for Israel at this point. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. Do you hear that tenderness? (laughs) You feel that sometimes, especially parents, when it's like you have to punish your kid, but you don't really want to? I need to discipline you in some way. 
but my, my heart warms within me. My compassion stops me from going over the top. <laughs> Sometimes it's more like, no, 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 I just get angry. <laughs> but do you hear this from God? He's like, he's speaking to a nation that's been turning against him and turning against him and worshiping other idols and like over and over and over again, over hundreds of years, despite him crying and calling out the same things over and over. How many times have I said to my own children, how many times do I have to say this to you? <laughs> and God says to them, how could I give you up? My heart of compassion yearns within me not to just turn away from you. So here we are in the prophets, and he is this tender father disciplining and caring with compassion as he continues to discipline his son. Now we turn back to 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 7, records God speaking to David. Now David has said he wants to build the temple for God. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to build God a temple a real house for him to dwell in. The prophet comes to David, uh, prophet Nathan. He's like, actually, you're not. Like, he starts reciting God's words, and God says, you're not going to build a house for me. This is not the right time for it. Actually, I'm going to build a house for you, David, this long-term lineage of ruling. And so 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12, when your days, David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David's son, who we know was to be Solomon, but he's not just going to be king. God says he's going to be as a son to me. I will be as a father to him. So God's representative ruler, the son king, represents the son nation. Right? Israel is my son. I rescue Israel from Egypt. I establish them. Solomon is my son who rules over Israel. These, these relationships that we have, and whether it's the leader of God's people or God's people or the individual person, Adam, God's saying, son, 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 family, daughter, son, beloved, I care, I love, I have compassion, how can I give you up? Over and over again. This is not something that we can just say, oh, it just, you know, it just happens one time in the Bible. Where, well, no, it's constantly. Father, son, caring, loving, disciplining, even for his leaders. And when we look at some of the negative examples when God's calling out to his people to be faithful, it's set in a different kind of family perspective where he's calling them to bride-like faithfulness. So back to Hosea. In Hosea chapter 2, just reading a few verses here. In chapter 1, you may recall that he asked Hosea to marry an unfaithful woman to be as a a symbol and a figure acted out to the people of Israel in the message of what's going on. So he's living out the message. And he's saying, you know, that you're going to have children and name them not my people because Israel's not my people right now. Name them not loved because I'm not going to show love and mercy to them. Like this very much lived out demonstration of God's message. And we get to chapter 2 and he's saying, I'm going to turn things around. So even though she's been unfaithful, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. 
Then he says, I'm going to rescue her instead. And so then, verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, and there I'll give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 19 through 20, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Verse 23, and this is referencing back to chapter 2. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So even though there was this concept of distance that was created relationally by Israel's unfaithfulness, and God's affirming that distance was there. You were not my people. You were not loved. He's saying, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to bring you back into beloved, my people, redeemed, rescued. And then we see even expanded beyond that, it's going to apply also to those who were not part of Israel, to the nations as a whole who were not God's people and now are, who were not loved and now are. But God's calling to faithfulness. He's not just saying, you're like a worker who doesn't work well. He's saying, you're like a wife who's being unfaithful. Come back. Exercise this love, this care, this relational connection. So then that's surveying Old Testament mostly. We transition the New Testament. And this is where, especially as we look at what it means to get to this point of Christmas, this point of a birth in the manger, we, we go through and establish this context, right? So reviewing, the Trinitarian family has existed since eternity. The Trinitarian family has been growing through all creation and existence. God has defined his people as his son, whom he rescues, whom he disciplines, whom he delivers from enemies. He treats the representative leaders of his people as sons. And he calls his people to bride-like faithfulness. So now Jesus is born. Jesus, who is the true son sent by the father. In Matthew 2.15, at this point, having covered a couple texts, you might recognize this when I read it. It says, They went down to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So, if you recall from a few minutes ago, Hosea 11.1, When Israel was in Egypt, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And Exodus 4, you're going to say to Pharaoh, this is my son, and you're going to let him go. Right? So Matthew, not just this example, but many examples in the first few chapters of Matthew, is establishing Jesus as the true son of God, the true Israel, the one who's going to fulfill all that Israel was intended to be. So he references in multiple ways, but this is one of them, to show, yes, the one who is literally God the son, who is now born as God's human son, is the true son of God is the true Israel, the true one who's going to show what it was intended to be like this entire time. But the son of God, not the prophet of God. There's so many prophets throughout scripture. Like God could have used a prophet to say these things. He could have used a great man, a warrior leader, any number of things like David, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Like we go down the list, right? Many men, Daniel, people who were great men of faith, people who were conveying truth faithfully, when God chose to come to the earth personally, he didn't do that as just a disconnected warrior figure. He did that as the son. The son came to be the son and to show us how to be the son. 
So Jesus, the true son sent by the father, he came, and this was the plan of the father that he's carrying out. So Romans 8, 29 I don't know if I can find my bookmark. There we go. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is why I said introducing your elder brother as in the title of this. Because Jesus is not just the son of God born in a manger. He is in faith and by connection to God's family for all of us, our elder brother, the firstborn, the one deserving of all glory and all honor, the one who has existed from all eternity, who is now born to more concretely establish the family. He is the elder brother. He came to rescue all of us. So he came down, and as Philippians 2 tells us, he set aside the glory that was his. He didn't consider the glory of God something he had to cling to, but he came down in the form of a man to take the place of a servant, as a slave, to give his life as a ransom. And therefore, God has exalted him, and he's going to get praise from everyone. Right, that's like paraphrasing Paul in, in chapter 2 of Philippians. But that's what Jesus set aside all this glory to come and rescue us. So then from there, Jesus came. He's born. He's in a manger. The future of that baby in the manger is a cross, very intentionally. That's the plan the whole time. And he grows in stature and favor before God and man. And he grows up to his 30s and establishes ministry and loves people and heals people and rescues people, points them to the truth, and he dies on a cross. And that cross pays the way and paves the way for what? For salvation, for God's people. But we've got to realize, and I think this is critical, as we recognize where we stand in history and in theology in the family of God, the benefits and the glory of salvation don't end at justification. And so often it seems that we, we treat faith and, and justification as if that's the thing. Like Jesus paid for us to be justified. Your sins are paid, huzzah, you're done. That wasn't the end of it. It's like if you said, oh yeah, we got some money. Okay, well, what'd you use it for? Justification paved the way for adoption. If all, if all it was was your sins were paid for and then you weren't brought into God's family, well, then you've got sins paid for not in God's family. You still don't have all the blessings of being a part of God's family, but it wasn't just that. Justification led directly to adoption. J.I. Packer one time said it this way, justification is the basic blessing on which adoption is founded. Adoption is the crowning blessing to which justification clears the way. God's people are adopted sons and heirs. And we've got to realize that justification is huge. This is not to diminish justification, but it's to say justification had something it was leading to. We don't just rejoice that our sins are paid. We rejoice that we are part of God's family. He is a caring, loving father who has brought us into the blessings of the family and the promises. And we're co-heirs with the eternal son of God. God the son from all eternity, existing in love and in bliss, creating a world and sharing that with his people, that's who we're co-heirs with. When we look at Romans 8 again, in verse 14, it 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. When you talk about being an heir of something, you're going to get an inheritance. Maybe you've got a rich uncle who had no kids and he thinks you're awesome. Maybe you've got a rich dad or, or mom who's about to die or whatever. Inheritance, it's what's left over. It's what's given to those who are going to inherit it. Sometimes there's other things like a trust fund that you come into when you're of age, for example, or that sort of thing, right? But if you're an heir, it's you're going to receive something. And the thing you're going to receive depends in large part upon the source of who's giving it to you. If you're going to get an inheritance from someone who is poor, you're like, they're going to give me, I don't know, a vest they wore or something, right? Like, they don't have a bunch of stuff, so I'm not going to get this big, huge wealth. If you're getting an inheritance from a billionaire, you're going to get a lot because they're leaving over a lot. And even if they distribute most of it to charities and they only give you a pittance of it, that's still you know, $50,000 or something, right? Like, that inheritance is a lot because the source is huge. This is the inheritance from the eternal God. This is the inheritance of blessing that is coming from the one who has no limits on what he can provide for your needs and your joy in eternity. And you're sharing that with the son. You're sharing that as part of the family of God, co-heirs. And this is something where there's a very brief side note, but there's a lot of different theology about (laughs) Israel and the church and how this all fits together. But one thing that's very clear to me in the study of scripture No matter how you fit in Gentiles and Israel to the Bible, if you leave the Gentiles out of the blessing that God is bringing, you're denying one of the greatest things in all of Scripture, that Gentiles are truly adopted into the family of God. Those who are adopted are real sons and daughters. They are not fake sons and daughters. They get real share in the inheritance. And it says here in Romans to believers who are Jew and Gentile, you're co-heirs with Jesus. That's huge. You are inheriting in the family with the Son of God. My peace I give to you, Jesus says. His peace, his glory, his joys, his provisions. Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The promise to Abraham. You will have a place, a land, which expands to be, you'll have the entire earth. By the time we get in the New Testament, You'll be provided for. You'll be a blessing to the world. You're heirs according to these promises God has given. We all are if we are in Christ. Heirs of the family. But not just that. There's discipline of beloved sons. Especially when we turn to Hebrews, we see this spoken about very intentionally in Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So he's saying, God disciplines his children, those he loves. When you feel like God's just not constantly give you a bounding blessing after a bounding blessing, no matter what you do, it's because God loves you. 
and he loves you too much to just go foolishly on your way pursuing sin or whatever else, he's going to rein you in. He's going to draw you back. He's going to say, no, 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 not that way, this way. He's going to provide correction. And every loving father or mother on this earth who's parenting in the image of God is going to provide caring, loving, compassionate discipline to help craft their children and mold them in the ways of God. That's exactly what God does with all of us if we're actually children. <laughs> Hebrews says, if you're not disciplined, you're an illegitimate child <laughs> because every father disciplines the children that he loves. Then we're called to live right because of sonship. So 1 Peter 1.17. He's talking to them. He's saying, prepare yourselves for action. Like this is the, the day we need to be uh, vigilant and active in our righteousness, etc. And he says, God is holy. Verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This is your exile, figuratively speaking, before eternity comes. So your exile is all of your life existence. If you call on him as father who, who does this, and you do, because if you're following Jesus as a disciple of his, God is your father. So he's saying if slash since you call on him as father, therefore live for him. He is the one who impartially judges according to each one's works. Conduct yourselves for him with fear throughout your time on this earth, your time of exile. But it's not just because God's going to judge right and wrong, and if you want to get right with him. No, no, if you call on him as father. Like he is your father who you want to honor, who you want to love, who you want to follow and, and show you know, actions that are in alignment with his family culture, all this kind of thing. If you call on him as father, then live for him. We do not have time to speak more of faith like a child, Matthew 18, Mark 10, Luke 18. Trust in the Father everywhere. <laughs> but Matthew 6, Matthew 7, trusting him for every good gift, James 1:17. Discipleship in general as a family type thing in the New Testament too. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Timothy 1:2, Philippians 2:22, Galatians 4:19, 1 Corinthians 4:15, 1 Timothy 5:1-2. The Spirit stirring up family affections in us. Uh, which I don't actually have a reference for right now. I should have. But like the, the, the Spirit's work. So God the Father, who sent God the Son, and God the Spirit comes and brings his work to bear on our hearts and rescues us and gives us the affections to love him. <laughs> like helps us to be part of the family functionally. Uh, one of the references would be in Romans 8, like when we think of the section in Romans 8 where it says, uh, when we don't know how to pray. Like we're, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For even when we don't know to pray, he intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Right, this concept that, uh, or earlier when we read verse 15, the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Right, so he's, he's giving us this adoptive spirit. We say, Father, that's from the spirit. That's not just our own concocted thing. So even as God the Son, Jesus, has rescued us and made the way for this, and God the Father has planned it all out, God the Spirit is making it happen functionally giving us these affections, giving us this love and this joy for God to follow him, to be part of the family. So, flurry of references there and themes again. Faith like a child, trust in the Father for every good gift, discipleship as a family thing, spirit stirs up infections. All of those themes and many more continue to flesh out. But then as we get toward the end of the story, by starting in John 14, 
This is Jesus again speaking shortly before he would go to the cross, telling his disciples what's to come. John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So the faithful bride will join the Trinity for eternity. This is is the final thing as we see the full sweep of the story. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. There is room for you. There is a spot for you because I'm preparing it. So the bride's going to come. A place to live, a place to exist, a place to be his. Revelation finishes this picture. In Revelation 19, starting in in verse, uh, I'll actually start in verse 6, but verse 7 is what's going to be on the screen, and 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God, who called to his people to be faithful like a bride throughout the Old Testament, is now showing us that by his work and by the Spirit's work to bring about righteousness in his people, Ephesians 2, God prepared good works for us to do. All throughout Scripture in the New Testament, we see the Spirit's going to give us strength to live for him, right? By that, verse 8, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. God has given the bride fine linen by which to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But again, family context, the bride coming to Jesus. There's this love, there's this care. And the bride shows up to eternity dressed well with the righteous deeds that are not even directly hers in the first place. Righteous deeds that the Spirit has enabled for us to do. Revelation 21, 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The holy city coming down to meet him. Almost like we see these days the bride coming down the aisle to meet the husband standing at the front waiting for her before they say their vows, right, in our marriage ceremonies that we do. Here comes the bride, New Jerusalem, coming down, prepared as a bride, adorned for the husband to be with God forever. And what does God do? What does the Father do when this bride who has had such a mixture of unfaithfulness and faithfulness comes to be with him? Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You see that? What are you, you going to do when you finally get to the feet of Jesus? <laughs> in the presence of the Father, and you think back on this life, I don't care how righteous you feel like you are. (laughs) God, I'm so sorry. I live with such foolishness. Maybe you start weeping for the sake of your own sin, and the Father will wipe away every tear from the eyes, and death will be no more. No, come in, beloved. (laughs) Come into this eternity. You're home, you're here. Things are made right now. 
Sin's beat up and gone. Now we get to live for eternity in the joy that was intended in the beginning. Not a judgmental, get over it, you know, yeah, you really should have done better, but hey, here we are finally, at least we made it. <laughs> not, like the, not like the child who's been asking for three hours straight, when are we going to be there, when are we going to be there, and then you finally get there and you're like, oh, we're here, go take a nap. Right? Oh, the father's wiping away the tears, caring, providing for eternity for his people whom he loves. So Merry Christmas. This is the story. This is the family story that we're situated in as we look at the baby sitting in the manger. Because the thing is, we're not just looking back on a story that has happened. We are doing that, but we're also looking back on a story that will happen, that God has promised will happen. We look forward to our future in the midst of this too. And when you look at the baby in the manger, you see that Jesus, your elder brother, came to join you to the greatest family. Like, what kind of sacrifice and service is this? That these who have been rebels, how do, you, how do you feel, how would you feel if your sibling hated your parents, turned away from them, slandered them, constantly called other people their parents, constantly like went out on the news and published this idea that your parents were stupid, that your parents didn't exist, that your parents' morals don't matter, et cetera, et cetera. Absolute rebel. How would you feel as a sibling? Just as we have the father in Hosea saying, how can I give you up? We seem to have Jesus saying, how can we let them go? <laughs> as the son comes down with his greatness, with his power, with his majesty, and he leverages all of that to become a helpless little baby, to grow up a human life, to die on a cross and pave the way to bring back the rebels. Nothing we could have done on our own. We had no chance and no hope. We were lost. All of us, all of humanity was lost. No options. And the son says, essentially, if we're speaking 2,000 slang, I got this. Or maybe it's like, here, hold my drink. Or whatever. Like, <laughs> take, take whatever figurative slang image you want at this point. And the son says, I've got this. I'm going to get them. I'm going to go reach down and rescue them from the muck and mire of sin, from the ways that it has distracted them and distorted them from the ways that they've given into it from the first day that Adam and Eve turned away until right now in 2023, until whatever day Jesus comes back, the way that sin has wrecked things, the way of the brokenness and the curse, and Jesus says, I'm fixing this. In submission to the Father, coming and executing this plan, and he's born as a baby in a manger. Manger is not a throne. A manger is not a place of glory. A manger is not what he deserves. A manger is not his rights. A manger is not the wealth he could have, giving only a portion of the wealth because it's still a lot for that person anyway, etc. Like all these things that we might think through in our limited generosity. He gave literally everything he had to come down, set aside glory, came as a baby to, to live a, a rough life. Like he was, wasn't posh. He wasn't born with a spoon in his mouth, sleeping on really nice pillows with lace and trim and all this. He's sleeping in a manger on hay to parents of poverty, grows up learning the trade of a carpenter. Your elder brother loves you, loves us, loves the Father so much as to do this. He set aside the shame of the cross and bore the cross and the pain and the shame of it. He said, it doesn't matter, I'm doing this. 
He set aside the opportunity to just live a posh life in heaven and instead connected with existing as a human and the pain and the sorrows and the hungers and the weariness and the sickness and the, the, the tiredness after serving all day. And then people still want more service when he's trying to rest. He did all of that. And it all starts there in the manger. And if we don't see like manger expanding out to whole life, it doesn't really make sense to be so happy about a baby. <laughs> like it makes, it makes really a lot of sense to be happy about a baby for a f- given family. But for us to be eternally worldwide happy about a single baby born in a manger to children of poverty... There are lots of children born, even now, in the time that I've been speaking this sermon, based on statistics, we've probably had like 100 babies born or something around the world, maybe more, many of them to poverty. And none of us are singing praises of those babies. And it's not because those babies don't matter, they do. They're all made in the image of God, like they all have great value as human beings. But none of them is the Messiah to save the world for eternity. None of them is God the Son come down in flesh to rescue us. So as you look at Christmas and as we reflect on all of this, remember the story of who you are, of whose you are, of whose family you live in and exist in if you are following Jesus. If you're not, and if this isn't your story, as Hebrews says, at best you're illegitimate sons hanging out in the church and not really being connected, but you know what? Today can be the day of salvation. So this story still can be yours regardless. Justification paved the way for adoption and adoption brings so many blessings of being part of the family of God for eternity. Jesus, the little baby, Jesus, the man, Jesus, the eternal son of God, has stepped down as your elder brother to rescue you, to rescue me, to rescue all of us. And we get to praise him for eternity. We get to be with him forever, rejoicing in his presence. That's the hope of Christmas. That's the hope of all of scripture pointing to Christmas and flowing out from Christmas. Your brother's made the way. Welcome to the family. Let's pray.